We are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And we're starting at the beginning of the chapter as we are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday mornings. And we pick it up in verse 1. Let's read it together. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Obviously, from the very beginning, we all know this portion of Scripture, along with Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, to be the portion that many call the Lord's Prayer. In actuality, that is a a misnomer, for the Lord could never pray a prayer personally that would ask for the forgiveness of His sins, for Jesus was perfect. It should be more rendered the disciples' prayer. And it's predicated on a simple question. Teach us how to pray. If you are really interested in the Lord's Prayer, I ask you to direct your attention to John's Gospel, chapter 17. And uh, I think you'll find very quickly that you are in a very special place as you hear our Lord pray in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before His crucifixion. But as the disciples appear to watch Jesus pray in various locations, and Jesus was known to take a moment away from everything else going on. You know, feeding the 5,000, then he would go and pray. Raising the dead, then he would go and pray. uh, Alone and by himself. He spent time each and every day communion with the Father in heaven through prayer. The disciples are intrigued by the manner in which Jesus prayed. For their request to be taught to pray like he prays shows us and demonstrates for us that they were absolutely amazed that it didn't matter where Jesus was, he could always find a place to go and to pray. For the Jewish mind, location and prayer go hand in hand. And the place that the Jewish person went to to pray was the temple. For Jesus called the temple his father's house of prayer. Locality meant everything. When you come to John chapter 4, there's a debate between Jesus and the woman at the well, and they are talking about where is God actually meant to be worshipped. Here on our mountain, which is speaking of Mount Gerizim, or is he meant to be worshipped in Jerusalem? And this was an ongoing debate between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. When Daniel was in Babylonian captivity, and he was separated from Jerusalem, the times of the day in which he would pray, he would face the direction that Jerusalem lie before he would pray. And yet Jesus, it didn't matter where he was, he just went off and he prayed. And I have, I, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm absolutely convinced that they were intrigued by this. For in Luke's gospel, we find that a disciple comes to Jesus and asks them personally, teach us how to pray. 
But Luke also offers for us that Jesus here in verse 1 went to a certain place. The word certain place could almost be any place. There's no bad place to pray, except driving with your eyes closed. I do not recommend that, okay? Yes, we should, drive by, uh, we should walk by faith and not by sight, but driving and sight really work well together, you know? And uh, so that I can't encourage, but it, there is no wrong place to pray. You don't have to be in church to pray, You don't have to be in a special locality or at a special time of the day to pray. I was counseling a a gentleman years ago who was going through some financial difficulty and he was faced with the decision of liquidating some of the material assets that he had. And one of the material assets that he had was a uh, $250,000 boat. And I said, well, the sale of that boat would help you out sufficiently, uh, significantly. And he said to me, but that's the only place that I can pray and speak to God. And I said to him, I said, you can pray and speak to God and seek God anywhere. You don't need a $250,000 boat. Go to the woods and rent one for 25 bucks. You're still good to go. But so often we are convinced that there are certain places to pray that are more effective than other places. And that couldn't be the farther from the truth. Now, undoubtedly, you know, if I was sitting in some of the great structures of Christianity, you know, if I was standing in the Sistine Chapel and I'm looking at that huge mural on the ceiling, wow, you know, that's, that's incredible to see something like that. And you would think that it would be, oh, you know, God's got to be listening to me here. Look at this place. is beautiful, you know. But, you know, sometimes the best places to get away with the Lord are those places that are away with the Lord. Walking through the woods. Working out. I used to pray a lot when I was riding my motorcycle because I was afraid that I was going to be in the presence of the Lord at any given time. <laughs> So I might as well start now. There is no wrong place to pray. And Jesus demonstrated that for us. When people are often new in their Christian faith, and they often begin with that position of a reluctance to pray out loud. And I I never force anyone to pray out loud against their will. I've tried that, but... Um, torture is not a good uh, method of bringing that about. And I've noticed often when they say to me, they, they say, well, I, I just don't know how to pray. I, I just don't know how to do it. I, I don't want to say anything wrong. And, I, you know, one person even told me, um, I, I, you know, I just don't know the prayer language yet. And I'm like, prayer language? And I was thinking, is he talking about gifts of the Spirit? or What's he talking about? This is what he was talking about. The these and thous and those that are in the, New King, or the King James Bible. He didn't know them well enough to think that he could pray. 
that was his understanding of the prayer language that he needed. Thou art God Almighty High, you know, and such. And he was absolutely serious. He did not think that he was adequately equipped to pray. People have so many misunderstandings about prayer, and all of those misunderstandings are based upon creating something more complex than it actually needs to be. That's where the difficulties come in. Prayer is a huge topic. I went to Google and I typed in how to pray and I came up with 559 million different sites on how to pray. Now obviously they probably reflect many religious traditions and not simply Christianity. But the question is obviously a very prevalent question. I went to Amazon to find out how many Christian books were written on prayer. I found over 40,000, and I read all of them this week. I couldn't believe the number of books that were written specifically to instruct people to teach them how to pray. I went to YouTube because I wanted to see if there were individuals on there. And sure enough, over 25,000 videos are on YouTube teaching people how to pray. I've always wanted to write a book on prayer. And I would include this passage and the passage found in Matthew chapter 6, and then every chapter after that would be page after page after page with these words. Now do it. Now do it. Now do it. The next chapter would be, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. You learn by doing it. Prayer is one of the great privileges of Christianity, and yet it's the most neglected privilege uh, amongst the body of Christ that I believe is uh, uh, demonstrated in the lives of the believer. And many people have so many misunderstandings about prayer with God. And if I can simplify it for you over the next couple of weeks, that's what I choose to do. Because I find prayer is simply talking to God. And sharing with God. And interacting with God. And then waiting for God to respond. Now I love it when people, and I've said this often, that when we talk to God, it's prayer. But if God talks to us, it's schizophrenia. Let us be honest, how often do we throw up our prayers to God and sign off and say amen and and we walk away? That's like making a telephone call. You dial the number, they pick up, say hello, you say everything you want to say and then say goodbye and you don't even give them a chance to speak, right? You know, my daughter, love her to death. But my daughter, ever since I have been picking her up from school or calling her at our appointed times while she's in college, I literally get on the phone and I say hello, and then it goes for two hours. I, she doesn't even breathe. She just goes and goes and goes and tells me all about her day, everything that's going on. And I love every minute of it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. And she just keeps going and going and going. And you're like, she's got to take a breath. I even go make a sandwich, come back. Okay, so I'm still good. I'm still good. But then she'll say to me, she goes, you know, I just don't know how to pray. And I'm like, honey, you talk perfect. 
you have no problem. God has truly given you the gift of gab. There's no doubt about it. And all infection and love. We overcomplicate prayer. And as a result of the fact that we overcomplicate it, we tend not to do it. So as Jesus is now demonstrating that we can pray anywhere, the disciple comes to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Just that simply. Show us how, Lord. Teach us how to do it. Jewish people often in the culture would recite prayers that the uh, religious leaders would um, write out and prescribe, and they would simply be repeated. Or other teachers of God's word, rabbis, uh, a little bit lower than the religious leaders, they too would instruct their people how to pray. In some cases, there, are, there is evidence in the historical annals that tell us that some Jewish disciples felt that uh, certain prayers and individuals were more effective praying than others. You know, my wife, as you know, she, she prays constantly. And everyone's coming to her constantly and asking, can you, can you pray for me? And she'll pray for anybody and with anybody who requests. But then she started to get the idea that people thought that she and somehow had some closer relationship with God than they did. Or that she prayed in some certain way that made her prayers more effective than their personal prayers would have been. So my wife, when she started to sense that in the request, she would stop now with the people and pray with them right then and there and have them pray. And showing them very clearly that they're perfectly capable of approaching their Heavenly Father and talking to Him and praying concerning the needs in which they have. It's misguided to think that anyone in Christ Jesus is any closer to God the Father than anyone else. The same ear that I have when I pray is the same ear that's inclined to each and every one of you. And anyone can approach God through Christ and pray. So the disciples asking this question, it was completely appropriate for them to do so. And undoubtedly, Jesus taught this more than just one time, and that's why we believe that the account in Luke's gospel is uh, truncated and uh, summarized rather than the full uh, explanation that he, Jesus gave at the Servant on the Mount in Matthew 6. But Jesus begins by demonstrating for them what they should say. Now, it's not wrong to pray this prayer verbatim. However, though, in doing so, I think we often lose what Jesus was trying to communicate by the words he selected to use as an example to demonstrate how one should pray. And the Jewish mindset, again, uh, just being uh, familiar with the history of that culture at that time, they were very consumed with the location, with the location of where they were praying and where they were praying, etc., the religious leaders started to become a little bolder about the location and take it out into the marketplace. As you will see, they will go onto the street corners and then they will be you know, dressed up in all of their robes and then they will start shouting out to God. And Jesus said it was more of a spectacle than any kind of sincere prayer. But location was everything. But Jesus wanted to change the discussion. He wanted to change 
the uh, teaching, and he wanted them to not think any longer about the specific location of where they were praying, but who they were praying to and their relationship with him. That's what Jesus wanted to communicate here. Don't worry about where you're talking to God. Understand who God is and the relationship that you have with him. And he begins in a very, very uh, incredible way. Now, for you and I, we have grown up and been conditioned to call God our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. My Heavenly Father, etc. But for a Jewish person to uh, personally call God his Father was absolutely unacceptable at that time. They could address him as our Father, meaning the Father of the nation of Israel, but to personalize him and to say, My Father was something that was completely unacceptable at that time. No one could presume to do that. And when Jesus prayed in that manner, the religious leaders constantly looked at him cross-eyed and said, what do you think you are doing by such a blasphemous claim that you are saying that you are the Son of God? Obviously, Jesus was the Son of God and he was completely appropriate for him to do so. But then he begins to instruct his disciples saying, you can approach your heavenly father in the exact same way by calling him dad the word used here as jesus begins here in verse two for father is easily carried over in the aramaic as the word abba dad he is bringing prayer into the confines of a personal relationship with god approaching him as if he were your father, your dad. And for the Jewish people, this was extraordinary. And as a result, it changed the entire tone of prayer from the very beginning. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that when they approached God the Father in prayer, they could view him as their heavenly father, and therefore assigning to God characteristics that would comfort them in their approach to Him in prayer. Having a a good and healthy relationship with your dad was a key understanding in the manner in which Jesus prescribed the manner in which prayer was to occur. Now notice... He calls God the Father, Father, and allows His disciples to approach Him in the same way. This goes on into the New Testament as Paul says, that we can approach God and call Him Abba, Father, Dad. And so an intimate, personal relationship is established in and through Christ to allow us to call the God of all the universe, the one true God, father that's pretty extraordinary isn't it if you think about it growing up as many of you know i was adopted and uh, i have a great relationship with my dad you can keep him in prayer he's unfortunately in the hospital uh, right now he uh, had a uh, urinary tract infection and uh, 
uh, I called him yesterday and I said, Dad, you know, uh, I'm thinking of you. Would you like me to come see? And he goes, no, I'm crabby. But do me a favor. What I really need right now is your prayers. That's the first time my father in 51 years has ever asked me to pray for him. I said no, um, because he was crabby. And I said, boy, I'd hate to be a nurse on that floor. Uh, My dad's fantastic. I absolutely love him. I was adopted from an era, a place called the Cradle in Evanston, and just a few months prior to my adoption to my family here in uh, this area, a famous celebrity named Bob Hope uh, adopted some children from there. And I could have been Eric Hope, you know, and I, I sometimes think about what that, would be, what that would be like, you know, and so on and so forth. So a relationship with the individual is very important. Now, I couldn't have gone to Bob Hope during his lifetime and said, hey, you know, I was, I was at the same adoption agency that you adopted your kids from. Can I call you dad? <laughs> no. No, 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 you can't. However, though, I can call God, Dad, through Christ. Because I've been adopted again. And I've been brought into a relationship with God unlike anything else that has ever existed. Through Jesus Christ, I can call God, Dad. Now, for some people who have had healthy relationships with their fathers, that's a good thing. But I have come across in my time of being a pastor and so forth, that some have had very ugly relationships with their father and have trouble with that idea and understanding. Well, you know, my dad was abusive. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad was not there. My dad, you know, and so on and so forth. This is why it is necessary to understand that the failures of your earthly father is not encompassed in your heavenly father's character. And knowing who he is and his character allows you, therefore, to draw near to him and to interact with him as you should have always been able to do with your earthly father. But Jesus is opening up a door that these disciples had never, ever had before. Calling him father showed a very clear, distinct relationship in Judaism that they would have drawn from in understanding how, therefore, they should approach God. He didn't say mother. He didn't say brother. He didn't say sister. He said father. And the connotations of that is this, that this father of yours is meant to be greatly respected, that he's an authority figure in your life. He's the source of wisdom for your life. He's an example to you for your life. He's a name in which you live by, and he should be the ultimate demonstrator of the unconditional love that a father has for his child. Not a mother, not a brother, not a sister, but a father. Unfortunately, today, the absentee of fathers in the life of children has become an epidemic in our nation. The Census Bureau of the United States of America is now each and every census that is taken calculating the number of children that are growing up in fatherless homes. We are just at about 20 million children across America, one in four, growing up in fatherless homes. As a result, an individual growing up in fatherless homes has a four-time greater risk of growing in poverty, 
has a greater risk of behavioral problems, two times greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit a crime, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, two times more likely to suffer um, uh, uh, obesity, and also two times more likely to drop out of high school. This is the U.S. Census Bureau now saying that the absence of the role of the father in the family unit here in the United States of America is having devastating consequences upon the fabric of our society. I know a lot of single parents who I absolutely am just blown away by their diligence in raising their kids. I applaud them for their hard work and the efforts that they put forward because almost everything in this world works against them in doing so. But there is no other uh, means by which an individual can have that experience with a father than a father actively being involved in that child's life. So when we come to God the Father, let us understand that we are drawing into a very intimate and personal relationship. Jesus will go on to demonstrate through parables that He gives on what we can expect when we interact with our Heavenly Father, how He will respond to us and so forth. So we'll leave that for another time. But He proceeds then to say, now when you say Father, also say, hallowed be your name. One of the worst things that a son could do or a daughter could do to their father was to bring dishonor upon them within that society. By living in a manner that was irresponsible, by not obeying the wishes and the desires of the parents, by rebelling against the parents, etc., So as we now call God our Father, we should hallow His name, which means honor His name by the manner in which we live as Christians. Therefore, not bringing disgrace and uh, further uh, disrespect to the name of our Heavenly Father, but allowing others to see in and through us our relationship with Him. Does that mean that we're going to be perfect and represent Him perfect all the time? No. And God knows that. But we should strive to glorify Him in our lives. So others will respect Him. How can we ask the world to respect God if we who say we believe in God don't respect Him? And honor what He has asked from us to do. Paul, living out the Christian life, he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. I am living for the purposes of my heavenly Father. I am living that I may honor my Father's name amongst the world in which I live. And when we do make mistakes, and we will, and when we blow it, and we will, to understand that He's our Heavenly Father who loves us as a father loves a son, as a father loves the daughter. If we come to Him, John promises us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
He loves us so much that He loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. And therefore, sometimes He'll bring correction or chastening into our lives. And I think one of the greatest responsibility of a parent is the, is the administration of healthy discipline into a child's life. Of course, we find many unhealthy forms of discipline today that are ineffective. Unfortunately, we find too many parents who desire to be their child's friend rather than their parent, and therefore truly letting that child down. I was so grateful that my adopted father loved me enough not to simply tell me what I, always, what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. I'm so thankful that he stood up at times you know, to me and said, you've gone too far, you've gone over, you stepped over a line, etc. Because I've always known that my father loved me. And even in that discipline, you know, even though I would stomp off and say, I hate you and so forth, you know, and have my little powwow, my dad never ever said that in return. My dad always loved me and even when he was disciplining me i knew that he loved me again he wanted me to grow up to become the man that i needed to become so one day that i could interact with my wife properly that one day i could be a responsible human being and raising my family and being the father that i needed to be to my daughter And even though I promised that I would never say the things that my father said to me, I can't tell you how many times I've said those exact same things to to Autumn. You know, I'm not always going to be around. You're going to have to be responsible for yourself. You know, blah, 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 blah. Dad, you're still around. Even when I moved out, I still cut his grass for 15 years after I had left. I don't know how I got that. And my dad would even call me. He says, you're not getting your allowance this week unless you come and cut the grass. Dad, I'm 42. I've been married for 20 years, you know. I'm so grateful for that relationship that I can look at my Heavenly Father and understand that when He interacts with me, He interacts with me on the basis of love, and therefore I should respond to that by looking to honor Him in and through my life. He then asks them to say, your kingdom come. Throughout the Old and New Testament, the promise of God's kingdom upon this earth was something that the Jewish people held too tightly. It's when Jesus fully comes in his full authority to reign over this world in which we live. I know that sounds bizarre to some of you, but that's what the Bible promises in Revelation chapter 20. That for a thousand years, Jesus Christ will reign physically after he returns to this world. And he gave us all kinds of signs and prophecies to watch for and to look for, to understand our getting closer to the time of his return. And I want to tell all of you here today, we're getting close. Now, I'm not going to set dates because no one knows the day or the hour, right? But I am going to say this, we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before, right? And every day that goes by, we see another scene in this last stage being set for his return. 
Even though the kingdom now, people are being called into it, and one day we will be established over this world, looking at it through the eyes of Jesus Christ, you and I now can see going forward, it's coming. It's coming. And no longer will the world be subjected to corrupt government. Wouldn't that be a nice for a change? I encourage every believer to, to read Revelation 21 and 22, which is the end of all things. A new heaven and a new earth will be provided. It should be our hope, and we should seek God and ask for Him to bring that kingdom to pass. In verse 3, He then leads us to ask for our daily needs. Give us each day our daily bread. God wanted his disciples, his followers, Christians, to know that he understood that there's a sacrifice involved in following Jesus Christ. And God, therefore, has given us these blessed promises through his word that he will fulfill to allow us to be sustained during our time here on this earth to allow us to freely worship him. As many of you know, I came out of the business community before becoming a pastor. And in the business community, I will tell you like it is today, I'm sure, that the pursuit of money was really the objective to each and every person that was in business. Starting a business, growing that business to a place where it could be sold and that money that it's sold for would be used for a nest egg into retirement, etc. But when God called me to Him, I realized that first and foremost, before I was a person in the business world, I was a Christian. And though my time in the business world was very fruitful and I learned many, many things from it, and I enjoyed the benefits financially from it, when God called me into the ministry, He also showed me at that time that those things that I felt that I was giving up or sacrificing for the call of God to become the pastor of this church we're going to be supplied by Him each and every day. This is why Jesus said what He did in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 25, if you turn there with me. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 25. When I was growing up, I was fortunate and blessed to never wonder if at dinner time there was going to be a meal on the table. I never thought, I never even considered the fact that there may not be one. It didn't even cross my mind. If it was something I liked, well, that was another story. My mom was absolutely fascinated with spam. I'm, I'm not kidding you, that, that those ham patties that came in a can, I don't know if you remember those things. And we had them all the time. And I think it was because you could do so many different things with them. And, uh, you know, and we always thought we got something new. But in actuality, it was just spam in a can some other way, you know. And my sister got more fed up with it than I did. And one day she was at the table and it appeared that she ate her two patties very quick. And we were not allowed to get up from the table until we finished our food. And it was like she inhaled them or something. 
And I'm sitting there, I'm looking for every aspect of opportunity to, you know, hide them under the peas, uh, throw them into the garbage can, you know, getting the dog underneath the table, whatever I had to do. And then all of a sudden, my sister, who's three years younger than me, she's just sitting there smiling, saying, I'm all done. Oh, she was all done, all right. Two hours later, my dad goes out on the back patio and my sister had thrown them out onto the back patio through the screen. And there are two spam patties right there on the patio. So my dad picked them up, put my sister back at the plate, and said, now eat them. No, he didn't. Come on, I just said he was a nice guy. He made me eat them because I'm the one. That, no. Uh, but notice what Jesus says here. Thinking about our Heavenly Father in the manner in which we have just described Him, think of verse 25 with me in chapter 6. Now notice, this is just after Matthew's recording of this same prayer. Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they, Jesus asks? In verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious or worried and fretting, that's what the word encompasses there, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you anxious about the clothing you wear? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, neither do they toil nor they spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory will not, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and is tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The provision of God. Paul carried this on into the New Testament. And I say this continuously is that I want you to see that it's a thread of thought that's found throughout the New Testament. For Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need that you have. Now the problem is, is that often we don't propose our needs to God in our prayers. We, we, we actually propose our greeds to God, what, what we want. Lord, you know. And then God doesn't answer and we get all ticked off at God. God says, I'll, I'll supply all of your needs. And, you know, sometimes I think God's like Walmart. If, you know, if you, they don't have it, you don't need it, you know. And as a result, I believe that we, therefore, each and every day can be confident in not only the provision that our God will provide for us on a daily basis for our basic needs, but also know this, that Jesus said from the very beginning that God the Father knows what you are in need of before you ever ask. 
Isn't that amazing? Why? Because he's got his eyes on his kids. He loves you. I, since Autumn has been in college, I, I will tell you, it's been a new thing for Dina and I. Uh, she's our only daughter. And when I see her calendar and I see things coming up, and I know that she needs a little extra cash for what's coming up on her schedule, I'll put it into her bank account for her so she has it. And, uh, you know, she's very uh, good with her finances and so forth. But the reason I do that is because when she was home for the break, she says, why do you do that? Why do you put the money in it? And it's always the money that I need for whatever is coming up next. I said, because I wanted to show you that God does the same thing in our life. And I wanted to demonstrate for you that God does the same thing for us in our lives. He provides for our needs. Even before we have the need, He's aware of the need that is on the horizon for us. But that trust in Him as our Father allows us to rest in that confidence of faith that He will provide our every need for us. He then continues teaching His disciples how to pray in verse 4. He says, And forgive us our sins. Today, when we talk about sin, we often diminish the reality and the impact of sin upon our personal lives. And as a result, we don't take it as seriously today as the Jewish people took it back then. And let me demonstrate for you why sin was so serious to them. Because under the Mosaic Covenant, they had to sacrifice animals to cover the sin of their own personal life. And in doing so, part of the requirement of that sacrificial animal was that that animal needed to be raised by the family. It needed to be taken care of and protected. It needed to be without spot nor blemish. It couldn't have a birth defect or a defect that came about from its each and every day of average you know, wanderings. And so this lamb was so taken care of by the family that it became a, almost like a family pet. And yet that lamb would be the lamb that is taken to the temple to be sacrificed on behalf of the family. And so you can understand that they understood this love and this little thing that they had in their house that the kids have named and so forth is now being taken to God and laid before God and sacrificed for their sins, not the lamb's sin. And therefore they understood that they were responsible for the death of that little animal. But Jesus became the lamb of the world. Jesus became that last sacrifice God himself stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and he went to the cross and was sacrificed once and for all for all of us. Our sin is dealt with past, present, and future, but in the life of the believer, sin can separate us from God in this regard. Now I want to be very clear, so please listen to what I'm about to say. It is, not, it is not our salvation that we are separated from due to sin in the life of the Christian. That has been secured in the person of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. 
what happens is that what is separated is our intimacy with God, our communion state with God, a, a place where we're close to the Lord. And God will often uh, cause us to uh, look and reevaluate our lives by somewhat distancing himself, even though he's always there and he always cares and so forth. But he does so in a sense to get our attention that we repent of these things and therefore reestablish that intimacy with him once again. If you've been married any length of period of time, you will know that there are different periods in your marriage. There are periods in your marriage where it's like the honeymoon phase, which it's, you know, uh, smooky and, you know, and, you know, ch- uh, chicken lover or whatever, you know, pet names you have for your spouse. And, uh, hey, I'm making this up as I go. <laughs> and then the house isn't big enough. The bed isn't big enough because you just want to have that cuddle time all the time. And you know, you know men are in that phase when, they're, when they agree to the cuddle time. Um, and, you know, but then there's other times. Then there's other times where you're still married, but then the house isn't big enough. The bed isn't big enough. You're just like, Mm-mm. nope, she did it again. Or he did it again and left the seat up. Nope, tooth off the cast, uh, the, the uh, Cap off the toothpaste. Nope. Unforgivable sin, you know. All right. Throwing your socks and underwear towards the hamper is not the same thing as putting them in the hamper. And so the relationship is somewhat estranged, right? You're still married, right? Still love each other tremendously, but just a little estranged. That's one way that I think about it with God, and it's a very crude way of saying it and a very simplified way of saying it. But the reason that we avoid sin as believers is not to worry about our salvation hanging in the balance, but our intimacy with God. You know, there were days growing up that I couldn't wait for my dad to get home from work. Just couldn't wait. Because I got an A on my report card and I wanted to show him and milk him for every dollar that he had. There are other days, though, that I could not wait for him not to come. I mean, because this time I had a bad note from the teacher, right? And I had to take, my mom would literally make me take it out to the car and hand it to him, even before he gets out and gets rested and so forth. I had to hit him with that right away, and that's when you get the full brunt of things. And I wasn't nearly as enthusiastic at that point. And the same is the aspect when it comes to our Heavenly Father. So forgive us of our sins that we may stay in that intimate, close relationship with you. That we walk, may walk in communion with Him. And forgive us, I'm sorry, and for we ourselves, we forgive everyone who is indebted to us or sinned against us or who has done us wrong. The Christian life, if we are to truly realize that we are walking in forgiveness, we are therefore required to forgive those who have wronged us. And as a result, we are asked by God, commanded by God, to forgive those who have wronged us. 
For Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Paul reiterated this when he said in Colossians, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And lastly, he writes, And lead us not into temptation. God never tempts us in in its hope to create a fall for us. But there are things in this world that will tempt us. And the prayer is, Lord, lead us from the presence of those temptations. Help us and protect us from the tempting power of sin within our life. And how do we do that as believers? Well, Paul says, let us walk in the Spirit, not therefore gratifying the desires of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the spirit and the desires thereof and against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing those things you want to do. If we are going to avoid temptation and resist its pull towards us, then we need to walk in the spirit, live in the spirit as God has designed us to do. Knowing that Paul also promised that no temptation has overtaken you that is not uncommon to man. But God is faithful, he writes, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so this is the manner in which Jesus says, now say these things when you pray. Understanding that you're approaching your heavenly Father who loves you dearly. And that you want to honor Him and bring glory to Him and allowing His name to be hallowed by all who see you. And let us understand, therefore, that it's also a prayer of ours to see Him in His full reign, asking for His kingdom to come. That, the, that this world and that which is in it, sin and death and all the suffering and sorrow and everything that sin has brought, will finally once and for all come to an end. Amen to that, huh? And then he says, realize that your dad will provide for you each and every day your needs. So ask for that. Understand your sin will keep you at a distance from God. So pray that your sins may be forgiven. And in the wake of the forgiveness of your sins, now forgive others who have sinned against you to show that same humility that God demonstrated when He subjected Himself to His own creation and went to the cross for you and I. And lead us not into temptation, but keep us from those places, those things that will draw us away from God to cause us to sin before God. And this is the beginning of our look of prayer. Prayer is an awesome privilege that we have. That as a Christian, we can come and we can talk to God through Christ. And the reason I say that is because what separates you and I from God is sin. And until that sin is dealt with, we don't become His child. 
He doesn't adopt us until that sin is dealt with in our lives. It's that sin that separates us from Him. It's that sin that needs to be dealt with, that imperfection that's in our lives. God demands perfection from each and every one of us. And I am incapable of doing that. I'm just going to say I am not perfect at all. But one came who was perfect, the person of Jesus Christ. And he came. And the penalty for our sin equaled death. And this perfect individual, Jesus Christ, came and died on our behalf. So therefore, even if we die physically, if we believe and trust in Him, we can have eternal life. We can be adopted into the family of God. And we can come to God in our times of prayer and call Him Abba, Father. But apart from Christ, we can't deal with our sin at all. The sin creates a cavern between me and God. And there's nothing I can do. I can't build a bridge made of my good works and the good things that I do. And because I may be better than the person sitting next to me, that doesn't equate a bridge that is going to span the gulf of that chasm that sin has created between me and God. And therefore, I may shout from the side of the cavern, Lord, Lord, in my times of prayer, but His ear does not need to be inclined to me because I am not His. I remember once growing up, we used to love when the ice cream man came down the street. He would play this incredibly weird music over the loudspeaker of his truck, and you could hear it from blocks away. And it literally was like the Pied Piper for every kid in my neighborhood. The kids just came out of the woodwork. It was like, you know, they're all scurrying down to the street, you know, because the ice cream man was coming. And I remember one time coming out with my friends. And my dad met us there at the curb. And he asked me what ice cream cone I would like. But my friends were with him, were with me. And my dad looked at them and said, you know, you're not my kids, I got no obligation to pay for yours. He was a pretty interesting guy now that I think about it. Um, And yet he did. He wasn't obligated to, but yet he did. So we could all enjoy some ice cream together. If God answers the prayer of a non-believer, it's completely on the basis of His grace in hopes that one day they would come to know who He is and the love that He has for them. But once you receive Christ as your Savior, once you put your faith and trust in Him and say, Lord, I can't bridge the gap from my side, can you bridge it from your side to discover that God has through the person of Jesus Christ? Every religion of the world is man trying to reach up to God to earn God's favor. Christianity is God reaching down to heaven because he loves you and reaching you. And that's what he's done through Christ for us.